Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, 2 Kings chapter 16 continued. Well, with that, we are in 2 Kings chapter 16. And we only got a little ways into that last week. Now, keep in mind that we are witnessing the last days of the existence of the northern kingdom of Israel. As of this chapter, some of the people of Israel are already being deported, and the land is in the process of being emptied of Hebrews. And when we left off, we found that the kingdom of Israel had sunk so low that it had essentially thrown off its identity as a nation of Hebrews. And so it, now it allied itself with the nation of Syria in a military coalition that was meant to overthrow the government of Judah. That's right. Imagine that. For the first time since the separation of the brother nations of Judah and Israel as a result of that civil war following King Solomon's death, the northern tribal government, as led by Pekah, formally joined with a heathen nation to go to war against the southern kingdom of Judah. And their purpose was not only to conquer, but it was to put an end to the Davidic dynasty. Even more, the allies intended to put a Gentile ruler over Israel into place. And while Israel's reasons for doing this were meant for self-gain by King Pekah and also represented a pragmatic regional geopolitical strategy, the evil one was at work behind the scenes, orchestrating all of this so that the advent of a divinely promised Redeemer that was to come from the house of David would be aborted. I mean, after all, no house of David, no Messiah. Of course, the Israeli and the Syrian kings had no knowledge, they had no concept of this spiritual reality. And they were just little more than willing dupes in Satan's hand. And yet, in a way that is regularly too much for even Messiah's Ecclesia to accept as possible. Yehovah was actually advancing redemption history towards its goal by allowing Israel's falling away. Soon Judah would follow. And then in a similar pattern, a little more than five centuries after the Babylonian exile, the Hebrews would again go astray and this time reject the Messiah who finally came, Yeshua of Nazareth. The result? Yet another exile. The one we refer to as the Roman exile. But there was another result as well. And it essentially fulfilled one of the key terms of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Genesis 12, 1 through 12, 3. Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house, and go to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. And by you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Suddenly, the redemption horizon expanded from Israel alone to the entire globe. The Gentile world would now be given the conditional privilege of being grafted into the covenants that God had made with Israel. The condition that a Gentile had to, by faith, accept the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, and give up his or her identification with the gods and the ways of the pagan world. But again, how did this come about? It was in a way that any reasonable person living in those times, Hebrews included, would have viewed not as a victory, but as an abject defeat the people of the promised land would be removed from their land inheritance by a foreign enemy and then scattered to the four winds. Romans 11, 9-15 says this, And David says, Let their dining table become for them a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a punishment. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see with their backs bent continually. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they've permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid. Quite the contrary. Quite the uh, contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel is being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles, is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting Him mean? It will be life from the dead. Israel and Syria did attack Israel. And they did have a large measure of success. But they were not able to fully conquer the southern kingdom. King Ahaz, by the skin of his teeth, remained on Israel, rather on Judah's throne. But his kingdom was greatly weakened. And as a further proof of Israel's apparent loss of memory of their heritage, we find in Second Chronicles 28 that in addition to killing 120,000 Judean males, soldiers, Israel took 200,000 Judean women and children as captives and led them off to Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom. 
Israel's ally, the Arameans, the Syrians, did the same and they took some uncounted number of Judeans back to Syria with them as slaves. Most of them never returned as far as any biblical or Syrian records indicate. But this action of Pekach's troops of capturing and intending to enslave brother Hebrews brought a very harsh response from God. For God I'd rather for Israel to do such a thing was not only well beyond the scope of what the Lord had intended in allowing Israel to essentially be God's hand of punishment upon Judah, but they broke a cardinal commandment in the law of Moses that prohibits a Hebrew from taking another Hebrew as an unwilling slave. Jehovah sent a prophet named Oded to confront Israel's leadership with a divine warning and four of Israel's influential leaders grasped the gravity of this situation and they did the right thing. They obeyed what God's prophet told them. They immediately released the captives. They fed them. They cared for them. Even putting the weak and the elderly on donkeys and they took them all back home to Judah. Now naturally... This series of devastating events caused a paranoid reaction from Judah's king Ahaz, and that's what we're going to start with today. So open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, page 420, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We will start reading at verse 5. Then Ritzin, king of Aram, and Pekach, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to fight against Jerusalem. They put Ahaz under siege, but they could not overcome him. It was at that time that Ritzin, king of Aram, recovered Elot for Aram and drove the Judeans from Elot. Whereupon people from Edom came to Elot to live, as they do to this day. Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath Pileser, king of Asher, with this message. I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace and he sent it as a present to the king of Asher. The king of Asher heeded him. The king of Asher attacked Damasek, Damascus, and he captured it. Then he carried its people captive to Kir, and he killed Retzin. And when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet, meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Asher, and saw the altar that was in Damasek, he sent a drawing and a model of the altar to Uriah, the Kohen, with details of its construction and decoration. Then Uriah the Kohen, the high priest, built an altar exactly according to the design King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Uriah the Kohen had it ready by the time King Ahaz returned from Damascus. And when the king arrived from Damascus, he saw the altar, and the king approached the altar, and he offered on it. And he offered his burnt offering and his grain offering, and he poured out his drink offering and splashed the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. The bronze altar, which was before Adonai, he brought from in front of the house, from between his own altar and the house of Adonai, and he put it on the north side of his own altar. 
Then King Ahaz instructed Uriah the Kohen as follows, Henceforth, it is on the large altar that you are to offer the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's offering and grain offering, together with the burnt offering of all the people in the land, their grain offering and their blood offerings. You are to splash all the blood of the burnt offering against it and all the blood of the sacrifice. As for the bronze altar, I'll take care of that. Uriah the Kohen acted in accordance with everything King Ahaz ordered. King Ahaz removed the panels of the trolleys. He took the basins off them. He took the sea off the bronze oxen supporting it and set it on the stone pavement. And because of the king of Asher, he removed from the house of Adonai the colonnade used on Shabbat that had been built for it and the king's entrance way outside of it. Other activities of Ahaz and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Ahaz slept with his ancestors and he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Then Hizkiah, Hezekiah, his son, took his place as king. Verse 6 says that the Syrians took Edom back from Judah and kicked all the Jews out of that nation. Now, Edom, whose founder was Esau, Jacob's twin brother, had a long history of subjugation, generally by either Judah or Syria. King David was the first of the Israelites to conquer Edom. And Judah held on to Edom as a vassal for a long time until it was lost under King Yoram to Aram, to Syria. And then under Judah's king Azariah, it was reconquered. Now, what made Edom valuable was the port city of Elat that lay on the finger of the Red Sea called today the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, this seaport gave the people of that region excellent access to the shipping supply route where trade could be accomplished with northern African nations. That and Edom had a good supply of copper that was needed especially in the making of bronze. So Edom had been this ping pong ball bouncing back and forth between two nations who each wanted access to the Red Sea, Syria and Judah. Now it's Syria's turn again. Well, verse 7 about King Ahaz going to the king of Assyria, Asher, for help is far more ominous than it might seem in just reading it in 2 Kings. And the reason is that there's another side to this story that doesn't appear here. It wasn't all that unusual for a weakened nation to seek the shelter of alliance with a much stronger nation. But it was something that God warned Israel to be very wary of and and in general to not do it. But even more, it is only when we understand what immediately preceded King Ahaz approaching Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria for his friendship and rescue that we can grasp the serious rebellion against Jehovah that is inherent in his decision. Let's revisit Isaiah chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's just a few pages to your right. Page, we'll take a look at page 446. 446. We're going to read verses 3 through 12. 
Isaiah 7, chapter, uh, Isaiah 7, verse 3. Then Adonai said to Yeshiel, Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yishuv, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the road to Launder's field, and say to him, Take care, stay calm and unafraid. Don't be demoralized by these two smoldering stumps of firewood, by the blazing anger of Retzin and Aram, or the son of Ramalia, or because Aram and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have been plotting against you, thinking, we'll invade Judah, we'll tear it apart, and then we'll divide it among ourselves and appoint the son of Tavel as king there. For this is what Adonai says, it won't occur. It won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damasek, Damascus, and the head of Damasek is Retzin. In 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. They will cease to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Shomron, Samaria. And the head of Shomron is the son of Ramalia. Without firm faith, you will not be firmly established. And Adonai spoke again to Ahaz and he said, Ask Adonai your God to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere, from the depths of Sheol to the heights above. But Ahaz answered, I won't ask. I won't test Adonai. So here we find that before Judah was invaded, God sent a prophet, Isaiah, to King Ahaz to tell him that the Lord was not going to allow Israel and Syria to conquer Judah. Notice how the term Ephraim is used as a synonym for the northern kingdom of Israel. This is because Ephraim had become a super dominant tribe that essentially engulfed all the northern tribes and their dominance is being recognized by using their name interchangeably with Israel. Now, This is primarily important for us to know because of the liberal use of the term Ephraim in end times prophecies denoting especially their connection to the legendary ten lost tribes of Israel. Now to be clear since immediately after Solomon's death, the terms Israel, Northern Kingdom, Ephraim, and the Ten Tribes, and in time the Ten Lost Tribes, all are essentially synonymous. And in times Bible prophecy will have you running in circles if you don't understand that. Now, God told King Ahaz that he would deliver him from the coming invasion. It's not that God promised there would not be an invasion, but rather that Judah would not be conquered. It wouldn't be torn apart and divided up between Syria and Israel, and thus King Ahaz would remain as Judah's king. And notice in Isaiah 7, 10, and 11, that God told Isaiah, uh, God through Isaiah rather, uh, told King Ahaz to ask him for a sign. But in verse 12, King Ahaz refused. Now normally, a sign from God is a visible proof or guarantee that God said 
that whatever God said would occur will occur. It's designed to reassure this nervous recipient. But in this case, God telling Ahaz to ask for a sign is a test for Ahaz. And by Ahaz refusing, he failed the test. By refusing to ask God for a sign, Ahaz is demonstrating he's not interested in the Lord's leading. He's not interested in his protection, and he's not interested in his deliverance. In other words, this sign was never intended as a proof of God's faithfulness to deliver. Rather, it was a test of Ahaz's faithfulness to trust God. Thus what we see is that Ahaz had reached the spiritual point of no return. He committed the sin of blasphemy by staring down God and saying a firm, No! I don't want your deliverance. It's not that Ahaz didn't believe in the God of Israel. The Oriental mind had no trouble with believing in all the gods. The issue was not which God you believed in, it was which God you chose to give your allegiance to. (coughs) And how would one choose? Very simple. Which one did you trust the most to give you the most? That's how you chose. Now, while I could probably preach a couple of sermons only from this, I'm going to resist that temptation. <laughs> However, there is, this gives me another good opportunity for me to demonstrate to you the difference between believing and trusting. The majority of the people in the West would say that they believe in God but very few would say they put their trust in Him. That is, believing that there probably is a God of some sort or another isn't anything of merit. However, trusting in Him, that's another issue. Trusting means you have committed to the principle that whatever that God tells you to do or don't do is right. And so it determines your decisions and your behavior. Trusting means that you have decided that this particular God is also the most likely of whatever other choices are available to come through for you. That's what it means. James 2.19 You believe that God is one? Good for you. Demons believe it too. Thought makes them shudder with fear. King Ahaz had no doubts that Yehovah was real and that he existed, but Ahaz didn't trust God to deliver him. Ahaz figured he had options A and B for deliverance. And I can tell you, I think Lester can tell you, Lester as an evangelist can tell you, that this pattern of knowing that God exists but not trusting Him for deliverance is probably the single largest reason for people refusing to acknowledge Christ. 
I can't begin to express the number of people who have bluntly told me they're a good person. That's going to get them to heaven. Or that they don't sin. Oh, they give to charity. They do lots of good deeds. So that surely puts them in good stead with the Lord. In fact, there have been relatively few people who have ever told me that they did not think that Jesus saves. The bigger issue for them, for the majority of them, is that they think they have options A and B. Option A is that they put themselves in Christ's hand for salvation. Option B, they save themselves. And the majority prefer option B. Like Ahaz, it's not that they don't believe in God. It's that they trust another means than God to deliver them. King Ahaz's option B was Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, or of Asher as it's often called in the scriptures. So in verse 7, Ahaz sends an emissary to Tiglath-Pileser with words that he should have responded to God's offer with. I'm your servant and your son, just save me. In Middle Eastern terms, to offer to be someone's son has many deep meanings. For one, it indicates a very close relationship. Another is that the son is under the authority of the father. And yet another is that the son inherits from the father. So it's quite right that a Christian ought to commit to the Lord by saying, I am your servant and your son, just save me. But notice how different the result is when one commits in that way to God the king versus a human king. When one commits to God, one becomes a receiver of God's blessings and an inheritor of his kingdom. But in order for Ahaz to be taken under his father, Tiglath-Pileser's protection, he had to make a great payment of silver and gold to the Assyrian king as a bribe. Then continue those payments in addition. The human king became the receiver of the blessings. And in no way did Ahaz get to inherit any part of his father's kingdom. Now from the moment Ahaz submitted to the king of Assyria, he became little more than a hireling. And where did Ahaz get the necessary massive amount of funds to pay off Tiglath-Pileser? He plundered God's temple, which he had no respect for anyway. And he sent it all off to Assyria. God's holy property was taken and stolen and given to a pagan by a Hebrew king. And yet, because he was David's descendant, the Lord held off his judgment of him in order to maintain his divine promise of a forever Davidic dynasty. The bribe worked. 
Tiglath Pileser accepted King Ahaz's offer of submission in exchange for the Assyria Assyrian army attacking uh, Syria and Israel. So, really, they had no resources left with which to harass Judah. And verse 9 explains that Assyria attacked Damascus, deported its people to other places in the Assyrian Empire, and then, it, then they killed Syria's King Ritzin, who had troubled Judah so much. This deportation of the population of a conquered nation to some other nation in Assyria's growing empire became the hallmark strategy of Assyrian conquest and empire building. And this is exactly what would happen to the ten northern tribes of Israel. Now as many Bible scholars have noted, it is truly astounding that after such breathtaking apostasy, Ahaz would still be allowed by the Lord to complete his 16 year reign and then die more or less peacefully. But what we have seen thus far is but the beginning of Ahaz's defiance of God. Judah's king now traveled north to Damascus on a diplomatic mission to this conquered city. There he would meet with the victor, Tiglath-Pileser, and he would pay homage to him. And while he was there, he observed an altar to their God that so impressed him that he had a small model of it built and sent that along with the specifications and instructions to the high priest of the Jerusalem temple to build it. The writer of Second Chronicles adds that it was during Syria and Israel's invasion of Judah a few months earlier that King Ahaz took the spiritually depraved tactic of worshipping the Syrian gods beseeching them for their help. Why would he do that? Second Chronicles 28, 22, and 23. During his time of distress, <clears throat> this same King Ahaz added to his treachery against Adonai by sacrificing to the gods of Damascus who had attacked him. Reasoning, the gods of the kings of Aram help them, so if I sacrifice to them, they'll help me. But they became the ruin of him and of all Israel. Now even though we have the editorial comment that sacrificing to these foreign gods eventually became the ruin of him, the reality is that when Isaiah's prophecy came true, the one that says Aram and Israel would not conquer Judah, they would not be able to depose a cause from the throne and replace him with a foreigner. And this because the Lord God of Israel would prevent it. King Ahaz responded by giving the glory of his deliverance to the gods of Damascus. Because he, because during the attack, he sacrificed to them in hopes they would somehow find favor with him. And since Judah and he survived the invasion, he reasoned, well, it must have been those gods that rescued him. So now we see why he was so keen on that altar to those gods that he saw when he visited Damascus. And, so, and why he wanted one built just like it back in Jerusalem. It wasn't that it, because it was so grand. It's that to his way of thinking, it was so effective. In fact, 
the altar must have been significantly smaller than the authorized altar of burnt offering that had faced Solomon's temple for 250 years. Because in verse 17, we see that after Uriah the high priest built this new altar for King Ahaz and placed it at the temple, it was necessary to remove the trolleys that the several water lavers sat upon and the sea was taken off of its ornate stand as well. The sea was a nickname for that big, enormous water laver used to wash the meat before it was put onto the altar. The altar of burnt offering was so big and tall that it was necessary that the various water lavers have stands under them to raise them up high enough so that the priest standing up on top of the altar platform could reach the water without having to go up and down the altar stairs. However, with the introduction of this new and apparently much shorter Damascus-style altar, the water lavers were now too high to reach. So they had to remove the trolleys and the stands from underneath these lavers and then set the vessels directly on the courtyard floor. Well, Backing up a bit to verse 11, we find that Uriah, the high priest, didn't seem to express any reservations about building this new altar for the king. Thus, the infection of apostasy and syncretism with, with pagan religions had even reached the highest levels of the priesthood now. In fact, Uriah hurried to get it done before the king returned from his trip to Syria. And the first thing that Ahaz did upon his return was to go to that new altar and sacrifice on it. But even worse, he ordered that the original altar of burnt offering be moved aside so that this new altar could take its place directly in front of the door into the holy place. The original altar was moved to the north side of the temple. And if you think back to some of the lessons from the book of Exodus. It was there that we learned that the four compass directions held various degrees of symbolic status. East carried the most status, north the least status. So this new altar was placed to the east of the temple sanctuary while the God authorized altar of burnt offering was moved to the north. And the decision by the king to put it on the north side was not arbitrary. It would not have gone unnoticed by many of the priests and the people. King Ahaz had gone completely spiritually insane. Any doubt as to which God he gave his trust and allegiance to was now clear. Any doubt as to what people he considered his friends was now clear. Who he regarded as his savior and deliverer left no doubt. He had thoroughly rejected Jehovah God of Israel and equally thoroughly cast his lot with God's enemies. Verse 18 speaks of a Sabbath colonnade that was removed under the king's orders. Now there's been some disagreement over just what this was with many Christian scholars supposing that this was a special place for the king to come and stand 
for the Sabbath day sacrifices. However, Jewish scholars have a different view. They say, the tradition says this was not a colonnade, it was an awning. It was built for use by the outgoing shift of priests. See, the Levite priests were broken up into 24 courses, each of them having a set time, a set week, to serve at the temple as a group. The shift change came on Shabbat. However, due to the commandment to do no work and not to begin a journey on the Sabbath, the outgoing shift could not start their journeys back to their villages until the day ended. Therefore, an awning was built for them to rest and to wait under, protected from the elements, until the sun set that day. It was this awning that was removed. And one can only surmise that its removal was aimed at some kind of public display of the king's diminishing regard of Shabbat and his growing contempt for the Levite priesthood. But verse 18 gives us another fascinating fact that the ancient writers of Hebrew tradition help us to understand. If you'll recall, the palace of the uh, the temple and the royal palace uh, together more or less occupied the, the, the highest and most prestigious ground in Jerusalem. There was a public walkway where, uh, between the palace and the temple where the king would walk in procession as he, uh, on the occasions that he would go up to the temple area. But now that King Ahaz had brazenly abandoned God and had willingly put Judah under Tiglath-Pileser as a vassal state to Assyria so that he could keep his throne, many wanted him dead. So he had a private underground passageway built from his palace to the temple so that he was protected from the people. But this passageway didn't terminate at the temple courtyard where it should have. Instead, it desecrated the holy temple by exiting inside of it. King Ahaz would have walked directly from his palace right into the inner holy chambers of the temple. This was forbidden to all but the priests. I mean, what an alien place the temple in Jerusalem had become. This was no longer the temple of God Almighty. It was now the temple of Ahaz. He officiated at it. He had his own altar built to sacrifice to other gods and even the high priest Uriah. He mixed his allegiance to Yehovah with King Ahaz. What was even more strange was this, this odd mixture of pagan and Torah-based rituals and ceremonies that happened there. It was the Syrian gods who were worshipped now. Baal, Ashtoreth, Molech, the heavenly hosts of the moon and the sun and the stars. As Edersham points out, it was, it was a weird combination of Syrian and Phoenician and Assyrian idolatry that had replaced proper Levitical sacrifice and observances. See, when one can kind of back away 
and catches breath long enough to grasp the horror of all that Ahaz has wrought, we, we realize that to substitute a pagan pattern for the biblical God-ordained pattern not only destroyed the divine order established by God at Mount Sinai, but it destroyed all the symbolism that the, the temple, along with its rituals and its furnishings, was meant to convey to the present and to future generations. Even to do as Ahaz did in mixing the holy with the profane, in which, no doubt, he thought he was appeasing all the gods, including Jehovah. Well, that's the, that's the worst sort of folly. But a chicken and egg kind of question has to be asked. Was Ahaz the, the cause of the spiritual darkness of his time in Judah? Or was he the outcome of it? Was Ahaz a manifestation of a new and evil brand of Jewish leadership? Or was he merely representative of his people who readily accepted such apostasy because their hearts were already deeply compromised? It's been a long time in the book of Kings since we've read anything that even suggests that the priesthood taught the people of Judah about the Torah. Or even followed it themselves. It's pretty clear that their cultural progress, their desire for peace with their enemies, their preference for man-made religious doctrines, and a want of all the good things of life, like their foreign neighbors possessed, this all conspired with their ever-increasing distance from God's word such that they no longer knew right from wrong good from evil their moral compasses were no longer pointing towards the Torah of God but instead towards the desires of their hearts and this puts a great fear in me along with a depressing sadness because these ungodly attributes are the exact ones predicted by Christ when he spoke to John and had him write it down in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. He said it would someday and now it does inhabit so much of Christ's church, his ecclesia. And just like the people of Judah as Christians, we are often in denial of it. As sometimes we practice a religion that contains so much pagan ceremony, so much human philosophical thought, and expresses primarily modern cultural desires. And then we look around and we lament the hollowness of our leadership that surrounds us, completely blind to the fact that they are essentially representative of us as a whole. How has this happened? Same way as it did for Judah and Israel. Too many believers have abandoned the word of God for man-made doctrines about God because it pleases us better. 
Too many believers no longer read the Bible. We read books about what other people say is in the Bible. Too many of our teachers, pastors, religious leaders are satisfied to teach us what we want to hear rather than what we need to know. Because the new call is to popularity rather than to service and obedience to God and to the defense of His kingdom. King Ahaz died and he was given far more honor than he deserved. He deserved to be thrown into the same valley where he had sacrificed his own son as a burnt offering to Molech rather than to be respectfully interred beside the bodies of his Davidic ancestors. Yet, his infamy did deny him burial near King David. Second Chronicles 28 tells us, Ahaz slept with his ancestors and they buried him in the, in the city in Jerusalem because they did not bring him to the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah his son took his place as king. King Ahaz was not buried in the rocky tombs next to the great kings of Israel and Judah. Rather, he was buried in the ground, in the family graveyard, along with the more common ancestors of David, that most of whom weren't eligible for royalty. Then his son Hezekiah took the throne. But next week, in chapter 17, the scriptures are going to move us back to the quickly disappearing northern kingdom and introduce us to Israel's final king before their exile. Only afterwards will we then learn about Hezekiah's reign.